0: Matt preached a cracker last week. I get to build off that um, today. We find ourselves in Philippians chapter 3. I want you to turn there. It is going to be up on the screen. Um, But if you've got your Bibles with you, uh, you can have a look in there as well. And today we're going to be going through verse 7 to 9. And I just want to do a bit of a recap. So um, the last time I spoke, we were looking at the true believer, and Paul gave three characteristics of the true circumcision. He said, first, they worship by the Spirit of God. Secondly, they boast in Christ Jesus. And then the last one, the one he's spending the most time on, and the whole of last week's sermon was on this, is they put no confidence in the flesh. And the reason why Paul is spending so much time on that third one is because that is the one that we struggle with the most. Our sinful nature can't help but put confidence in the flesh. This will be a battle you and I face to some degree throughout our days here. And if we leave it unattended, I think it might get the better of us. Paul is spending a lot of time helping you see that um, to put confidence in the flesh is anti-gospel. It's going to move you further away from Christ. And today the sermon is knowing Christ. And I want to say to you that this isn't a head knowledge. This word here is conosco. I've uh, explained it before, but it means knowledge by experience. And I think that Paul knows Christ in a much sweeter way than most of us are experiencing. And I include myself in that. And I think this morning he wants to push you and me towards this wonderful, great ambition of knowing Christ above all else. And we're going to start in verse 7, where... I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to show you what I see happening here. This guy is such a wordsmith. He's so gifted in his writing, and I'm trusting that the Lord's going to help me bring it out simply today in a way that would push you towards what Paul's experiencing. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing, When we start in verse 7, we remember, and Matt showed us this last week, that Paul is sharing his testimony. He's taking us back 20 years to a road on Damascus where this man had put in every possible human effort to be righteous before God to the point of killing other people Because he believed that's what God wanted him to do. And at this very moment that he's taking us back to, he is on his way to continue doing that. He is hunting down the Christians. He is wanting to throw them into prisons. And he has stood already at the feet of a stoned disciple who has died, Stephen. And in this moment, this glorious thing happens where he sees Jesus. And his eyes and his spirit are opened the moment his physical eyes are shut. He's blinded by what he sees, this great glory of Christ. But in that moment, he is saved and he rejects everything he's done up until that point to try and get to God. He realizes this great truth that, and I read this, I can't steal this line uh, without acknowledging it. One of the books we're working through as a preaching team is... uh, I might get the pronunciation wrong. Alec Mottier, is that you happy with that, man? Um, and um, Alec Machia has this beautiful line. I should have put it on the screen, but you're going to have to just write it down. He says, um, we cannot gain Christ through human effort. We gain Christ through the rejection of human effort. You have to reach this point of realizing that you've been putting this confidence in this flesh. You've been trying to get to God a certain way. But the moment you see Jesus, you realize how futile all of it has been. And in that moment, you reject it all. And you depend solely on Christ and what he has done. And that's what Paul does in that moment 20 years ago. He turns away from all of these categories that he had placed confidence in. And there were seven. Matt took us through each one. He put confidence in his uh, uh, birth ceremony. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He put confidence in his nationality as an Israelite, as one of God's people. He thought that was giving him an advantage. He put confidence in... um, I'm going to have to help myself and go back to him. He put confidence in uh, his tribe being one of the two tribes that stuck uh, faithfully uh, with God while the other tribes fell away. We've got the, these tribes, Judah and Benjamin. He's from Benjamin. He can be proud of that. He can be find confidence in his zeal as a persecutor of a church and how passionately he took this. Paul wouldn't have been just sitting here in church on a Sunday. Paul would have been zealously finding whatever he could do passionately to prove to you and God that he was good enough and he was worth it. He put his um, confidence in his morality. He says, under the law, I'm blameless. That's quite a powerful thing to say. I'm perfect. I haven't put a foot wrong. And I resonate with this man. Because I met Jesus in a similar way. I I didn't have a Damascus Road uh, vision. But I was a 14-year-old boy who, in my own view, was blameless. Perfect record at school. Never been in detention. Okay? How many of you can say that? Let me put your hands up. Okay? Always did my homework. Didn't... Ever want to put a foot wrong. And if I would make a mistake, I would immediately tell myself, you will never do that again. And so it was. If a mistake was made, it wasn't repeated. I am a perfectionist. I still am to the T. And so everything in me, like Paul, was trying to please God with my human effort. And I could have stood before you and said to you, compared to all the silly stuff some of you got up to in primary school and maybe early high school blameless okay didn't touch alcohol didn't smoke didn't uh go off at the wrong times didn't bunk school that rejected every opportunity to go astray and then there was a day when i saw jesus and all of that fell away it didn't matter anymore I took no confidence in any of it. I rejected all of it. It was rubbish. It was filthy rags before God, Isaiah says. Your best works are filthy rags before God. And like Paul, Jesus saved me. But 20 years ago, Paul's made a lot of progress when he gets to verse 8. And I'm going to take you through three things I see just in that one verse, in my first point, because this first point is that salvation is not just a pastime. And I'm trying to be clever too, so I'm also trying to work with words over here. And I mean pastime literally and um, in its uh, figurative sense. What is a pastime? A pastime is this thing we might like to do. It's a thing we will spend some time on, but it's typically hobbies. And it also means can be quite limited in how much time you can give to it. You might wish you could give more time to it, but you have other priorities, other goals, and this one you get to when you can. That's typically what a pastime is. And salvation is not just a pastime. My son is uh, quite good at chess. We've just found that out this year. Uh, he won his first tournament he was in. He uh, is on the verge of achieving border under 10, and he's turning to turn 8 this year. So he, he's really good. And because he's good and he's realized he's got to put time towards this thing to get better, he's already thinking about the future and saying things like that. When I'm older there's a 10% chance I'm going to be a professional chess player. And that means, do you know what a professional chess player is? You might not even realize those things exist. They do. If you are a professional chess player, you are putting in 8 to 12 hours into chess every day. This is no longer a pastime. This is your life. Your one ambition for your life is to dominate on that chess board. And that might sound very depressing to you, and I think it is, as well. But there's a 10% chance that might be my son. That puts some fear into me. But he does get something about it. He's not going to become dominant by just playing chess once in a while. It's got to move past being a pastime. Do You know what he says for his other 90%? So there's 90% chance we're going to go and do mission work. He wants to follow in his dad's footsteps. And that also puts fear into my heart. Luckily, I only did it for two years after school, so he's like nailed it down. to so I'm going to go do mission work for two years, and then I'm going to move on to, you know, professional chess or whatever the other thing might be. Jesus is Paul's one ambition. Jesus is the thing Paul puts all of his time on and into and being obedient to what Jesus wants him to do. Salvation is not just a pastime. And I I think the reason why some of us don't know Jesus the way Paul does is we treat it like that. We assign certain blocks of time to Jesus Sunday morning if we're uh, very good. Um, Maybe we do it on a Wednesday evening as well. We might have regular readings of scripture and prayer. All of these things are good, but we, if Jesus is just something we fit into these little spaces and he isn't everything to us, then you'll never get to what Paul's trying to teach you and me in this text and this beautiful thing that happens even in one verse in 20 years of progress. Because if I want to flip past time around, the other way we get this wrong, when I talk to people about Jesus and they say, do you believe? They might say, Yes. 20 years ago, I gave my life to Christ. And it's something that happened in the past. And then there's not much more that might develop after that. I want you to see the first thing from these two verses. In verse 7, can you put those three verses on the screen? I don't have them split up into but just that base text at the top. Start. It says this, but whatever gain I had counted, okay, 20 years ago, He was counting gain on seven categories. So even the the gain, the whatever has a limit. Okay, it's limited to seven things. Whatever I had counted, we're talking past tense, so Paul's at 20 years ago. I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. The first word I want you to pay attention to in verse 8 is, Indeed, I count. And you can miss this, but it's very important. We've changed tense. Paul's told us his testimony. He's spoken about something that's significant that's changed his life 20 years ago. But even as he does that and he unpacks how important Christ is and knowing Christ is to you, he shifts from past to present. And salvation can't just be a pastime event for you. It's something that matters now. It's as real to Paul now as it's ever been, and he has made even more progress than he made the first time. I said he, I named seven categories. He rejected all seven of them and came to Christ. How well did he know Christ on day one? The answer is not very well, and none of us do. That day, that I rejected my righteousness, and turned to Christ. I'm saved, but how well do I know Christ on day one? Very little. I have faith that he is alive and that he died on a cross and was risen again, and what he did, he did for me, and my sins are forgiven. But that's all I know about Jesus on day one. Paul In verse 7, he moves from the past tense, he moves to the present tense, but now look at this. He says, whatever gain I had, that's a limit. 20 years ago, I thought, I've got to give up these seven things, and he was right. Look at what he's thinking today. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Do you see the progress? We're not just thinking, I've got to give up my self-righteousness on this, 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 and this, and this. But the more he's gained Christ and knowing Christ, the more he's looked at all categories of his life and considered they're all loss. Compared to that one great ambition. There's 20 years of progress here. Whatever has changed to everything. And the second big change I hope you see there is, even in the terminology of who he's speaking about. Verse seven, for the sake of Christ. One word, Christ. Like day one, I know he's Christ. Where is he at 20 years later in verse eight? I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's not the same thing. He's moved. He's moved forwards in ownership and understanding the personal relationship that he's got with Jesus. This isn't just an objective thing. I just did it with Seb and Livy. now. They objectively understand what um, the bread and the the juice uh, mean. And I do think they're saved, but they're at baseline one of they know Christ like Christ. I know Christ like my Lord. But I still don't know Christ the way Paul does. And Paul's reaching into my heart and pulling me and saying, Mark, there's more. Is he your one thing? Or do you let other things capture your heart and slow you down? Because that is the key. That's what Paul's trying to show you. If you want to know Christ as your one ambition, there's going to be a losing of everything. And a willingness to say no to everything that... Counting it as loss. That's why I know I'm not there yet. Because this heart still grabs onto things and wants to make more of them than what they are. And when I do that, Christ won't gain in my life. That's what Paul's teaching. here. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I didn't see this until I preached on it when we went through Mark, or it was an Easter service. And the, Jesus has risen from the dead, and the ladies see him first, and then Peter and John. And the rumors start going around amongst the disciples, and they all see him, and except Thomas. And then the disciples go up to Thomas, and they say, the Lord has risen. Pay attention to the terminology. The Lord has risen. And Thomas doesn't believe them. Thomas says, unless I see him with my own eyes and put my fingers into his wounds, I won't believe. So they are further along the journey of knowing Jesus for who he is, because they know him as the risen Lord. Then Thomas is is way back. But this beautiful thing happens when Jesus appears in the room and Thomas can see him, and Jesus says to him, come and put your fingers in here. And Thomas, who was way back behind everyone else in understanding who Jesus was, in one moment moves right past all of them, and you can miss it. And how does he move past it? When he touches Jesus' hands, he says this beautiful thing Paul's saying here. He says, my Lord, he believes. But it's not just an objective, external, the Lord has risen. It's my Lord and my God. That's what Paul knows. And I'm spending time on this, guys, because I do think that we've got an objective knowledge of Christ. And I think we might even be saved, some of us. But nothing has developed beyond that other than maybe a religious piety which needs to be rejected. A dependence on self and being good and coming to church and doing the right things. But it hasn't necessarily progressed to Christ Jesus, my Lord. 20 years ago, Christ. Today, Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul is making progress in the gospel. He's making progress in his faith. Salvation is justification when you believed, and now it's sanctification. So I just want to explain gain Christ. You might be going, Is Paul does Paul not have Christ? Is Christ missing? He he got Christ the moment he believed, justified, the moment he believed, he has Christ. But now, because he believes, his ambition has changed from being good in all these other areas to I want to know the surpassing worth of Christ. And The sanctified believer wants that. If you don't want that, you need to get down on your knees and pray for God to open your heart to him. Because the sanctified believer cannot be satisfied with knowing Christ 20 years ago and not moving forward. Even today, as you sit here, even if you might be really advanced in your faith, your heart should still be like Paul's is. Paul isn't going, I now know Christ, let's park the bus, he is pressing on with everything he's got towards this goal of knowing Christ. And I look around the room and I look at my own heart and I go, Lord, we need your help. We need your help because we're not like this. Salvation must not just be a pastime event, church. The second thing I see in the text, the second point this morning is we have to lose to win. And look at verse eight. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may, might gain Christ. There's two losses happening here. Okay, the first loss is the um, choice. Paul makes to choose to give up on the things that he has placed his trust in, right? So the first loss he speaks about is, whatever I gained, I counted as loss. Then he moves on to, in some way, shape, or form, I count everything as loss. And that's him counting it as loss. That's him going as, I'm not going to uh, put any uh, any value towards this thing anymore. It's gone. Something I used to find value in, and I used to put time and energy and effort in. It's moved. That's a choice as well. Now, he says things that aren't choices. He says, I have suffered loss. That's different. That's external things happening to you, and I think we can all relate to this. And it's almost a forced losing of things. And isn't that interesting? Paul says that that's how you gain Christ. It's the giving up of things. As God puts that on you, you give it it up. You're going to gain Christ when you do that. But it's also, even in the suffering, in the forced losing of things we didn't choose to happen to us, but we suffer loss, even there, Paul looks through the lens of God is sovereignly in control of my life And he's allowed all these things to happen to me. And somehow, even in the suffering loss, I'm going to gain Christ. So you have to lose to win. And it's not gaining Christ, as I said before, in that you don't have him. You do have him. It's gaining in him. It's that he becomes more and more the ambition of your heart. And I thought, let's make that practical. You go, well. In what way do we suffer loss and can gain Christ? And I've had two strange experiences this last two weeks. I went to the hospital. It's part of my job, and I pray for people. And one of the ladies I went to pray for, she's doing really well. I think I even glanced over and saw her, so she's in church today. Um, and I went to go pray for her. While I'm there, there's another lady screaming. Okay, Screaming. Jesus! And uh, this lady says to me, Mark, that's another church member, congregant. Didn't even know she was there. She's screaming, Jesus. I was very uncomfortable for the few seconds I had to listen to that because you could just hear she's in utter agony. And I'm not sure if I'm welcomed into the space because I came for the other person, but I couldn't help, I was there. I thought, Lord, you've placed me here sovereignly. I'm here now. This woman's in agony. And I uh, kind of just stroll past and I see the lady and her daughter there and her just scream and they see me and they beckon. So I'm invited. Okay, okay. Come in. And stupid me, not knowing where the pain is, I grab her foot. Before I ask, where's the pain? So I grab the foot, assuming what are the chances of the pain being in this one foot. I'm not heading that way. And, and they said, no, it's that foot that you're touching. So I, I then tried to let go. They said, isn't this interesting? Don't let go. So she was having a referred pain from a hip that was excruciating in her foot, and they wanted a believer's hand to be touching where the pain was and to pray. So I, we, I prayed for her. And here's this daughter and me. We're feeling quite helpless. So we are praying. They were praying before I got there, and I prayed there, and the church prayed, and we received a wonderful testimony later that day. I don't know at what point, but the pain went away, and she was um, so grateful, and she sent a lovely message to the church saying thank you for, for praying for us. But you know what I thought? I have thought about that day, and a second person's coming to my mind as well, but I won't mention their name either. I know two believers in excruciating pain in the last two weeks. Both of them responding the exact same way. In excruciating pain, these believers are crying for Jesus. And they're not doing it the way the world does it, flippantly and uh, in vain. There's something in that pain, in that beautiful sound of calling on Jesus. Here's this daughter lovingly standing at the side, can do nothing, cannot enter into that that space of pain can just lovingly pray and be alongside and support, but can't actually experience and empathize with this massive amount of pain. And the same thing for the other woman I'm thinking about. Her family are around her day and night listening to her scream. And what can they do? They do love her. They do support her, but what can they do? And you know what's happening that's so beautiful in that moment? These ladies, because they know Jesus and they love him, are calling out on him. And you know what happens? What happens? He's there and he's feeling it. He's right there in the pain with them. There's something about knowing Jesus that's advancing even in great, tremendous suffering, pain in that moment. And many people have shared testimonies of a deeper knowledge and appreciation of Christ following, and this is just physical pain, but I'm talking about any massive loss. And Paul is saying to you, you might be suffering out there, but it can be, not necessarily, you might run in the other direction, but it can be in order that you gain Christ. And I've been um, marveling at these two ladies, and I've been saying to God, God, may I not run from you, even when it hurts. May I run to you. May I learn what you're wanting to teach me. There's other pain going on out here. People have lost jobs. People have lost homes. And there's a savior complex in me that wants to come in and save the day and save you. But there's another thing happening there where I'm going, God is going to teach us something about who he is through this pain. And I mustn't just come in and stop that from happening. I must listen to what God is saying and do what God is leading me to do but also trusting that in that pain, God's going to teach you more about Him. And at the end of the day, I want you to know Christ more. Not be comforted from momentary trials and struggles. The last thing, and it's beautiful, my last play on words this morning. You'll notice I'm trying to play on words. Okay, It's not a pastime salvation. Um, We've got to lose to win. The last one is this. Lost and found. Paul speaks a lot about loss. He says everything is lost. I mean, I struggle to listen to that and go, Paul, I want that. I'll be honest, I do struggle. I hear that and think, poor man. That everything has become lost. And we know what the poor guy's gone through and he's lost things he didn't want to lose he's lost that's what he's speaking about suffering uh, the loss of things he's lost his freedom he didn't want to lose his freedom he wants to preach the gospel but he's just going where god's telling him to go and in the going he's lost freedom he's in a prison cell and that's just one of the many losses i think he had a desire to get married he doesn't really specify it but he does seem at one point to be a little bit jealous over all the other disciples who got married and he mentions it, Peter and them, they've all had wives, we haven't had wives. When I do stuff like that, that's usually coming from a sense of, I wish I had what they had. But in his work and in his call, it never happened. He has suffered loss, things that he didn't want to happen to him, but he's learned that he's gained Christ, and now, lost and found, We might feel sorry for this guy who's lost everything. He says this beautiful thing in verse 9. And be found in him. None of us want to be lost. That's why we hate the word losing. That's why we hate these thoughts of giving up everything and, and losing this and losing that. And what else might God ask me to lose in this journey of knowing him more? Paul's learned something as he's been obedient and suffered these losses and gained Christ. He's learned that he, this thing we, in our hearts is actually we're searching for God, all of us even when we're grabbing onto these things that we think provide momentary support and fulfillment, it's really a a heart's cry for God. And I read a book when I was trying to help um, guys uh, get better in the area of struggling with pornography, and I'll never forget what the one guy said. He wrote the book, it's called Surfing for God, and he said, and you might disagree with this, but I, I think it's profound. He said, when men are searching the internet, Searching por- pornography on the internet? Underlying what they are actually searching for and they don't realize it is God. They are temporarily finding satisfaction in something that will never satisfy. And the underlying thing is actually they're searching for God. And it's only when they get that and can reject everything else and chase him and be found in him that you are satisfied. Paul's not wanting you to feel sorry for him. He's saying, I am found in christ if i want to get modern with you technological you could type paul into google maps and his location pen will say jesus christ okay that's where he is and for those of us who are found in christ that's what it means you want to find where we are we are with jesus we are so close to Jesus. That's who you look for if you want to find us. We are with Jesus. He has lost many things, but he has been found in Christ. And there's a sense of security. There's a sense of um, uh, comfort, peace that everyone in this world is looking for. Paul has found it, and he's found it in Christ, and he is found in Christ. That's his position. That's where he belongs. You are all in Christ, by the way. But I think you gain in awareness of that the more you pursue Christ the way Paul did. And the more we chase after pornography or whatever, I know that's quite an alienating one, but we've all got our little idols and things that our hearts run after. And the more we go after whatever that is, and it might be pornography, which you would count as filth, and that would be correct, or it might be something you don't count as filth, but if it's taking you away from God, then it's doing the exact same thing. It's costing you in a much bigger way. And if you can learn to move past those things and make Christ your one ambition, that you would know him more than you know him now. Not just objectively 20 years ago Christ, but know him as Lord and Savior. And even from that Space of my Lord and my Savior going further and going, I will lose this and this and this and this for the sake of knowing Christ. You will be found in him. There will be a sense of peace, a sense of joy, a sense of satisfaction that can only be found there. That's what Paul wants for you. We shouldn't be feeling sorry for Paul. We should be rejoicing that a human can be found in Christ. Because it can happen for all of us. And then I just, because I mentioned it at the start, and I do think this is why the Lord wants us to stay here longer on these few verses. He, he says, be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of from God that depends on faith. I'm not going to spend too long on this because Matt's going to do that next week. But I am going to say this. We have got to reject this personal righteousness thing with all we've got. I am not a good person. I reject that thought. You are not good people. I want you to reject that thought. Paul talking about being found in Christ, go straight back to where you started of letting go of all of the self-righteousness he ever um, stood on. And he says, when I'm found in Christ, I'm not carrying any of my own righteousness. I don't have any of it. I have the righteousness of Christ. You can only get that by rejecting your own. Stop saying to yourself, you're a good person if you do that. You are not. Stop stop looking at someone else you might be better than and and justifying yourself that way. We are not good people. You know what uh, Jesus said? I'm going to give you something from Jesus, something from Paul. These are one-liners, before you think I'm going hard on each one of these. And something from uh, a hero of mine, William Carey. All saying similar things. Let's start with Jesus in Luke um, 17, verse 33. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Paul is living out what Jesus taught. If you seek to keep your life in some way, you are losing it. You think you're living, you're not living. If you are able to, through Christ, because of that one great ambition, let go of things that used to steal your heart, and give them up for him, you will keep your life. You will gain it. And how do I know you're doing well in this? You're going to sound a little bit like Paul sounds in this next verse, and you're going to sound a little bit like William Carey sounds in his final sentence. In 1 Timothy one fifteen, and Paul wrote Timothy at the end. Okay, it's One of his last letters is to Timothy. This is what he says. This is what he's learned about himself. The saying is trustworthy and deserving, full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am going to emphasize, I am. Not I was, of whom I am chief. I am the foremost sinner. That is not someone standing in front of other people going, I'm a good person. That's someone standing in front of other people having written all of his letters and having lived his life and saying, I am the worst of all of you. And Jesus Christ came for that. To save sinners. It's why we've got to reject this thought that we're good people. That's not the gospel. That's not why Jesus came. Jesus came for sinners. I am a sinner. He came for me. And I'm not sure how much better I'm going to get in this lifetime. I do believe by his spirit he's helping me. But I don't like the thought of I'm a good person. I prefer the thought that Paul's got here of I'm the worst of sinners. And Jesus Christ, that's boasting in Christ what Madala wanted to do earlier. Jesus Christ came for, for people like me. He is uh, the one who is righteous. He is the one who is beautiful. He is the one who is brilliant. I am nothing. William Carey was a missionary to India and a hero of mine because I wanted to do missions. And William Carey was the first Protestant so to go to missions. And that's important because we don't agree with the Roman Catholics. Uh, they don't teach the gospel and uh, they add extra things to it. And they had lots of missionaries okay, teaching that way of thinking. William Carey is the first Protestant, the first reformed person to teach the gospel correctly as we understand it today. And he saw that there were whole nations that didn't have churches. Whole nations going to hell in his mind, according to what he read in the scriptures. And the Protestant church, because we were new and uh, newly formed, was still quite intrinsic in the way we were functioning. So he was the first one to go. And he went to India, and he lived and he died in India, serving God's mission. He could have said a million things on his tombstone of achievement, and what he did after being saved for Christ. He could have said, I loved him with all my heart, and I would believe him. He could have said, I gave up everything for him, and I would believe him. He could have said, I suffered the loss of my wife, children, and everything that was important to me for the sake of Christ, and I would believe him. This is what he says on the tombstone at the end of his life. A wretched, poor, and helpless worm, on thy kind arms I fall. One of the greatest missionaries after Paul and one of the greatest in recent times, didn't, in his last breath, stand on anything that he had done and didn't think of himself in any way, shape, or form as being having become a better person. He calls himself wretched, poor, and a worm, which is scriptural, by the way. And he says, On thy kind arms I fall. William Carey is not wondering what's going to happen to him as he passes on into the next life. He knows what's going to happen to him. He's going to be received into Jesus' kind arms. What I see when people are advancing in the gospel, when they are advancing in the knowledge of who Jesus is and Jesus has become their everything so much that they are willing to give up everything for him, is not a haughty kind of I'm better than you person. It's someone who's willing to say to everyone else, I am nothing, worthless, the worst of all of you, but Jesus is kind, Jesus is great, and in him I will boast. May you and I be that kind of person. Let's close off. Lord, I've tried to simply um, explain what I see in this text. But I pray for your Spirit's help this morning as we sit and ponder what we've heard. That this deep truth of knowing you to the point of losing everything to be found in you Lord, that we wouldn't rush off from that this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the grace and the will to come to you in prayer and in honesty and to ask you for this, what Paul has, a driving Single-minded ambition to know Christ and to be found in Him. I thank you, Jesus, for what you did on that cross. You did it for all of us. I thank you that even this morning someone can hear that and believe it for the first time and they will be saved. But for all of us, Lord, I pray that we would continue to develop in knowing you as our Lord and our God. And to lose the things, Lord, that are stopping us from knowing you more. And to look on the things that we've lost and have been taken from us in the light of that we might gain more of you and learn what you're trying to teach us about you. Lord, may we be a church that lives not on our own righteousness, but solely on what you have done for us. And can boast to the world and say to the world, Jesus and Jesus alone. He is my hope. He is my strength, my all. Amen. That's the end of the service. I've. Uh, taken a bit longer as usual. We do have coffee under the tent and newcomers, please, and new wish so that you could be here for the last few weeks. There is lovely eats at the table over there. Don't forget to go and meet Dave and Ellie and uh, we'll see you next week Sunday.